0: If you've ever wanted to get behind the creative minds behind some of the most fantastic documentary and factual content advice and Showtime, then you are going to love today's guest. Today's guest is Gregory Wright, and he is a supervising producer at Vice New York. And we worked together on a show, two episodes of a series back in November of 2022. Uh, that's how we met and um, i wanted to get him on the show so that you guys can get a bit of a peek behind the scenes what goes on how the stories are created but also uh, how someone can get to work at vice we talk about some of the routes into work on some of the projects at vice and showtime as an editor Um, some of the roles that you can do beyond editing, once you feel like you've reached a ceiling um, and how you can continue the art of storytelling beyond just editing. Uh, We also talk about some of the processes of storytelling and we reference project that we worked on, but also some other projects that Greg has worked on in the past. So it's kind of a full roundhouse of everything That there is to know about storytelling for Vice and documentaries for Vice TV and for Showtime. So listen up. I think this one is really, really informative, and Greg is a lovely guy. Greg, hello, welcome and thank you for joining me on the Video Editing Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm well, thanks. We're happy to be here. Happy to, to contribute.
0: Great. Yeah, really good to have you on. Um, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording because um, we were catching up. We worked together on a project in November of 2022 um I'm not sure how many details I'm allowed to share publicly so I'll leave that over to you. Um tell us a little bit more about the project that we were working on together and 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 how we met.
1: Okay, uh, I'd love to. So, um yes, we can say this is a we were working on a follow-up season, a second season uh to a series called Transnational. Um and It's a pretty unique one in that it um, sought to do a a lot of what some of the other um, investigative and um, somewhat news magazine pieces that we do at Vice. But this one, uh, the goal here was to sort of really understand what the perspective is from the trans community. Um, And in doing so, our correspondents identified a handful of different ways. And so... Um, there was an opportunity to have people immerse themselves into situations in which they can very much relate um, and empathize and um, really identify with some of the frustrations that some of the people that they spoke with. Um, it was an interesting challenge because, you know, that's all well and good, but at the same time, this is technically an investigation and technically a correspondent is uh remaining neutral and is not there to do advocacy they're there to meet people and share their stories and help put them together in a way that that is compelling and interesting and original and so in the writing process, it was a lot of sort of finding that balance um, because the truth is you know we were able to find people that were interested and excited about the opportunity and going into a various handful of cities all over the world. Um, And it was sort of like, well, why wouldn't this be about me? This is, you know, I'm here for this reason. Um, So that was a nice challenge. That that was a fun way to sort of really kind of understand that things can be a little bit different than the kind of straight-laced approach. Um, And so you and I worked together um, in the post process, which is really was my primary role. I I wasn't involved in the show's concept or in casting or any of the field work. Um, I came in as the supervising producer to just kind of help with story and work with the producers and the editors um, and kind of be liaison to the executives just in, in terms of, is the story working? What does it need? Um, you, you know, sort of being an outside perspective and um, giving notes along the way. Um, and so you and I had a good time just sort of talking through scenes and looking at stuff when it was very long and could go a couple different ways. And, and we can have a constructive conversation about like, okay, this scene is probably ultimately a three-minute scene. We're looking at a very watchable, but 15 minute version, you know, what is the thread through here? Um, and so, uh, yeah, and each episode was so wildly different, um, different cities, different countries, different characters, different constraints. Um, and uh, that was a good one, I thought.
0: Yeah, it was uh, It was really enjoyable. It was um, five weeks per edit. Per episode, sorry, I should say. Um, Uh And it was, um, I have to say, one of the better organized, you know, structured projects that I've worked on. So quite often um, for, you know, for anybody who's unaware of sort of the schedules, four weeks is not perhaps uncommon and turning around a project like that because it was a a TV 30. So... um, Although we didn't know that at the beginning, we, we didn't know if it was going to be a TV hour or a TV thirty. That's right. And and so turning around that in uh, in four weeks is not uncommon. So we had five weeks, and that was that was a leisurely. It almost felt leisurely, but uh, it's certainly anything.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it varies day to day. There's certain days, right, when you're when you're like, oh, the scene is working. This is great. Uh, you, you know, I'll move on to this next thing. We're kind of cruising through it. And then you realize that you have a rough cut to at the end of the week and you're like, Oh my God, I haven't even looked at this other material yet. So it, it, (laughs) it kind of ebbs and flows, which I think is part of it. I think it's part of the deal is that like, there's certain scenes that I don't know if they're harder to cut, but they, I mean, plenty of scenes are harder than others. But I, what I mean is that like certain scenes just kind of require more of your heart and they just by the nature of the material. And I think it's harder to, move on to another scene, even if you're doing it a, without a chronology in mind, um, without something that you really feel kind of represents exactly what the piece is trying to do, and just use that as the model. And then you can kind of move through some of the other scenes maybe quicker, knowing that you have that firm footing. But sometimes those, those major scenes, you know, take a little more time just to kind of get the identity mm-hmm. straight there
0: yeah and how would you describe a ma- <clears throat> excuse me how would you describe a major scene compared to a I would
1: scene? say a major yeah yeah totally um I mean there's a couple different ways a major scene I-, I think there's maybe like a there's a straightforward version of course which is that let's say it was a a big event and you have three or four cameras and you're kind of rolling sound on each one and maybe you're following several characters in one space. And it's a, let's say a, um, you know, a culmination, Um, working on uh, campaign trail films, you know, that final election night is always such a huge edit to try and connect everything, make it feel like the momentum is, moving at the right pace with respect to how things went, but you also have to speed it up and you also have to include sort of the parallel universe of what the media is saying about it and so on and so forth. Um, So that's, that's maybe a major scene, uh, you know, sort of by on paper, but I think the scene that can maybe be more major um, is a scene where your correspondent who is out there to, meet some people and kind of report on something has something changed for them or, or clearly they've learned something along the way, or there's a piece of information that they've learned either that's central to the story or just something profound from a character. And it's maybe more that when I say major, it's maybe more that it becomes sort of maybe the soul of the story that, Sure, you could, be, you could have gotten into the scene needing to get through a very dense piece of VO, 60 seconds of VO that requires a ton of data and archival and sound ups and requires a lot of elbow grease to make those work. And your next transition is going to be into montaging two days of material and you have to go through and find just the right moments that spell it out without it feeling rushed. Those are heavily uh, time-consuming, but that scene in the middle where you realize you're looking at something that defines why you did the piece um, and in a way that isn't like, well, of course, we're here to talk about this melting polar ice cap. Here we are at the ice cap. Obviously, this is the reason we're here, but more that you've met a character that, um, and sort of tertiary characters that are central to the story but ones whose words are really kind of putting the empathy where you need it to be. And there's just no way to rush those. There there's, there's no way to sort of hit up your producer to pull different bites. There's no way to farm out B roll selection to an AE when you really feel like you need to go through it yourself. And so I I've, I've, Can recall many instances where I've sort of emerged at the end of a day, happy with a scene, but really kind of aware of how much time that took. And it, it, but you have to trust there was a reason why you did that. That you weren't just spinning your wheel. I mean, maybe you were spinning your wheels, but that was the road, albeit a scenic route, to get to the point where that thing can then be your centerpiece, and you can kind of move forward into you know a little more of the the workman style. Yeah, pieces that would go around
0: it yeah that's it's really well put i love how you described the main scenes as the the soul of the film and Mm -hmm. it does feel Mm -hmm. like that you know you have the um the soul the scenes that are the soul that the you know pertain to the why of the film and then the connecting dots yes and those are the smaller scenes they connect the dots um and uh, I love right. how you described it, yeah.
1: And you, know, you don't always know what it's gonna be. I mean, I, I think there's, of course, plenty of moments where it's, it's quite clear that you're going into something big and um, your character is, is published or well-known or is something like that. But uh, often it's not the scenes you expect, that, that someone performed a, a certain way that um, they really put things into perspective in a way that the piece needs. And sometimes you really have to go back to find that stuff. But yeah, it is is—it's sort of the soul searching, we can call it maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it kind of it relates back to an earlier point you mentioned about story thread. And uh, that's a term, uh, it's something that I, I teach within the Unspiced Pro training about uh, storytelling. But having a story thread that kind of threads every little piece, every idea together and uh, it's something that not a lot of people seem to when they come into documentary editing uh, seem to understand the concept of uh, h- how would you describe a story thread
1: well i would say i there's a couple different ways but i think the maybe the simplest way to f- for me, the simplest way to kind of understand that is that thinking of all of your pieces, no matter what they are, as a a process or a path or um, uh, a term that's commonly heard on um, Showtime show that I work on is the journey. You know what what is what is the journey here? It, it's it's one thing to say from like a news magazine style approach it's one thing to say like okay we're going to be in this part of the world this part of the world we're going to meet this expert um we're going to get some verite in this other part of the world and each of these things satisfy a as well a somewhat holistic understanding of this story that you might not know about or maybe you've heard of and um here's why we're going to tell you why it's important but it's it, it those can be disparate and you can write all the VO in the world you want to say, now we're going here because we need to, now we're going to go talk to the smart dude because why wouldn't you do that? And it's, it, yeah, that, that works, but it doesn't really represent a journey. Um, and there are certain pieces that the journey is easier to find. And then there are other ones where it's really tricky to find. Um, a lot of science stories are, are, are tricky because you're doing just that. It's, it's, you're reporting on the research that's being done and you have to sort of make some connections on your own so you have to sort of think of ways that your correspondent can be immersed in the environment in a way that that they will learn something at one location and use what they've learned even though it's you know we know why they're there and we know what the, the data can show but the story at least needs to reflect that now we're going to this other location because she has been able to share this with the audience she's been able to learn this and express it in a way that the audience can understand and now and because of that and only because of that are we motivated to go to the next thing so i feel like the thread is is kind of that invisible line that is um, it's almost like a um, it's like a, a oversized sort of loose rubber band that you're kind of slowly pulling taut. And, and all these sort of disparate elements sort of snap into place. And I think on a molecular level, there's a structure to it. And it's kind of your responsibility. Um, and sometimes it takes a long time to find it, but to find the sort of contiguous nature that actually exists, that's actually natural for these things. You're not forcing anything. You're just sort of finding the natural evolution within the context of these characters and how they relate um and a thread is easier to find let's say in a point a to a point b story um you know we did a piece uh for showtime i guess it was 2021 <clears throat> about the darien gap um and you know this is very very notorious smuggling route um where pilgrims and um immigrants that are paying high up to coyotes to get them across this, this very treacherous stretch of jungle. Um, uh, and they'll come from all over the sort of Southern hemisphere, even if this stretch that, that, uh, ends in Panama is, seems quite out of the way. Um, but you get to cross a lot of territory without, uh, a lot of, a lot of border, uh, control. But of course, the threat level then to do that is very, very high. Um, and that is clearly a point A to point B story. We're meeting the characters that are all about almost ready to go, waiting for the right moment. Then they go, and then we went around to the other side. By no means could we put um, – uh, could we send our, our teams through the entire Darien gap. There were sections that they were able to do, but that's a risk assessment um, that – uh, is an easy one to say we're not going to do, um, but um, an
0: insurance nightmare.
1: It's an insurance nightmare. It's I don't. <laughs> there's not. A, there isn't a policy out there to cover that. Um, <laughs> and then you're at the other side, and you're meeting the characters and sort of debriefing. But uh, so that you know you're going to do that, you you know it's going to start in some way or another with this entrance and this exit. the The challenges for that one were how to balance. The flow of information up to that point. We had different interviews with with um, with border patrol and people in the military, are um, sort of drug enforcement, um, Colombian drug enforcement teams that were uh, kind of patrolling the area. And so we met with them and it's kind of a question of who do you start with? Do you start with the people that are trying to stop people from crossing or do you start with the people that are trying to cross? And then you meet the people that are trying to stop them, and so it there isn't a straight answer on that one. That's really just building scenes rough and moving them around a lot. Um, so I, I think that the, the the thread sometimes you have to work backwards and sort of say, well, we know at least this much that we by no means would be going to this scene without doing this other one first, unless we're unless you're doing something funky, unless you're saying we're going to do this out of sequence and we're going to intentionally confuse the audience as a narrative tool. That's a whole different story. But if we're talking about a, let's say something that's news oriented and despite whatever flair you'll use to kind of tell the story at the end of the day, it's a point A to point B, then you can kind of build your things, your scenes that you are at least pretty confident in the beginning that create a good bond. And then you add another bond and create this sort of, covalent stretch where there's a relationship. And so that thread starts to emerge. And I think it's really just, for me, it's always been like uh, you're sort of playing with with low intensity magnets and there's always some opposition. And suddenly when you find two that hit, you say like, okay, that's firm footing. At the end of the week, we might rip this thing up. And sometimes the only way to, to really understand your story is to force yourself to restructure. But when you find that one bond you can then say like, okay, what would, what would at least make sense to follow that or lead it? Then you've got a few more bonds and suddenly you've got your your, your string. Um, so to me, that's always the thread. It's like, what what is the how are we threading through these events? Sure, there's this huge protest and there's a lot of different characters there. We want to meet a lot of them. We want to get a good cross-section of what has brought people out this day for this protest. If we're doing a politics piece and we know we got the sit down with... The person that's either being rallied for or against. Um, so, what is the thread though in that big crowd? What is what is the the takeaway that's the most relevant for showing this story that's going to unfold as it comes down? Um, and yeah, I've found that that there's no not a lot of silver bullets in finding the thread. It's it's um, it's trial and error uh, yeah. in one way or one another. Of those
0: things you just got to figure out in the edit. That's all right. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a muscle that, uh, can be trained, I think, rather than like you say, yeah. there's no silver bullets. It's uh, just a muscle that with practice, you are able to see the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and where they belong.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It, it, it is, there's, there's just no, there's no substitute for experience like that. Um. And it can come in a lot of different ways. I think I think people can be kind of versed in storytelling and very in touch with documentaries that they've liked and that have reached them. And if you're willing to sort of unpack academically, you know, for yourself, why did this work for me? Why, why was this? What, what? How? How was I able to feel the way I felt? Um, if If it's a very straightforward story let's say where someone's emotions are are laid out and they're very relevant to you okay you know you're gonna you're gonna react that's that's for sure but if there's more to it what was the process maybe like ask yourself what the process was and then yeah just the experience of trying again and again and again I mean I think the best the best experience you can have is knowing that at the end of the day you can undo things and you sometimes really have to um and use, use language to help convince yourself of that. Like, uh, let's just do this for today. Let's just try this for right now and, and see how it goes. And sometimes I, I, I'm in an edit right now, and um, we were torn, um, e- each of us in our own ways, and genuinely about, between the producer and the editor, and then I'm the senior producer on it, um, about how, how much of a cold open are we going to do? Um, you know, I think cold opens in, in many cases are mission critical. You, you really, you, you, you don't want to have to ask that of a viewer that they're going to start the story without some of this important background. But other times, cold opens, when you have the option to not do them, let's say, um, they, they feel like uh, overused or they feel, uh, you know, there's this idea that let's just start cold and slowly build up the information and let's give the viewer the benefit of the doubt and treat them like an adult instead of spoon feeding them with this trailer. Um, but it, it, I think at the end of the day, you have to really look at, at, if someone has the ability to volunteer, to be so disadvantaged like that to the story and really let it be a slow burn. Um, and so we were trying to decide this. And the only way we were really able to figure it out was to move a couple of scenes around. Yeah, we were just sort of discussing how this first act would go. And we landed in a version that was feeling pretty good, the open aside. And so we said, let's try moving a couple of these chunks around. Uh, we said to the editor, don't spend more than an hour on it. Rough you know, music cues are just going to die on the vine, just like cut it up and move it around just for perspective. And it, it worked, it really gave us this sort of, it, it proved certain things needed to be a certain way and it proved um, how little a couple scenes were actually pulling in terms of, we thought there was, the belief was that there was a lot more information coming out of these scenes, but it was pretty muted. And so it, it that restructure helped us appreciate um what needed to be where so i I, it's tough when you're in a when you're in a a lightning fast edit it doesn't feel like there's time to experiment um but that's sort of a dirty word it's it's not not so much an experiment as it is the, the fucking process
0: yeah exactly and then the, the the pressure mounts the closer the, every time you you uh, you experiment or you try something new uh, and it doesn't work then the pressure gets even higher the deadlines closer and then you start uh, yeah the panic sets in and um, you start double guessing yourself and then you're going maybe, oh, we should yeah. go, maybe we should go for the safe option um, right. but uh, but quite often it's better just to keep ploughing forward and uh, ignore the safe option for now that's that's plan yep. That that's plan z
1: yep <laughs> that's right <laughs> you, you know you've got it if you need it
0: yeah exactly <laughs> um, tell um, tell us a little bit more about your role advice and how you got to where you are now and also you are an editor and if that wasn't something that we covered already you are primarily an editor and a storyteller. So tell us um, a little bit more about your your journey and your history as an editor as well.
1: Sure. Um, So I, uh, after school, I went to school in the the Northeast in the US and uh, I moved to New York pretty much right away. Um, And I was in a film program, not a film school, um, but a film program. And everyone kind of scatters after that. A lot of people go to New York, a lot of people go to LA, what are you going to do? Are you going to go shoot? Are you writing? Are you trying to direct? Are you, are you going to post? And um, at the time I was working for, it was a branch of the New York Times. Um, this was in 2000 um, and it was called, uh, uh, um, it was the electronic media branch of the New York Times, NYT television. Uh, and it's what later turned into their web content and so on. But they were co- co-producing with the, the formerly known as the Learning Channel, now TLC, um, and Discovery, all that stuff that turned into A&E, doing these what were called medical reality dramas. So kind of really early days of reality TV, but they were shooting 250 plus hours in the field after a nine week embed at a various ER so there was one show called Trauma Life in the ER, another called Paramedics. Um, and it was a something like an 11-week edit. Um, but when that footage came back, it was rolling. You, you had um, AEs that were immediately transcribing everything, logging everything, getting ingested in the system. It was a really tight machine to sort of flip over that much material. So I was working at that place as a post supervisor, or a, 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 I should say, a um, in the post department, not a supervisor at all, obviously. Um, I went there to be an AE, and um, uh, I had a really interesting interview with someone that was doing intake, and he said, you know what, you can, you can be an AE here, and you're going to learn a lot, um, but it's a really tough grind, and you might learn just as much in the post-production department. And the truth is, he just wanted to hire someone he liked uh, to help him <laughs> no. um, be an IT guy, uh, and it worked. Um, <laughs> but I, so for, from the start, it. it I, I, I liked it, though. I liked working with people, and I liked solving problems, and I learned how to build Avid, Um And then I, I ended up sort of under the table subcontracting, uh, helping people build Avids when they buy all the pieces um, independently from B&H that set them up in their apartment and stuff like that. Um, And then kind of quickly realized that, that I haven't been making, I, have really just sort of been in a very fulfilling position, but, um, it's, I, I sort of had to check in a little bit and as chance would have it, uh, I ended up in Seattle for a year. Um, my girlfriend at the time accepted a teaching position at, at her old school. And so I went out there with the goal of, um, trying to figure out a way to cut it's unlikely because that's not New York or L.A. It's not as much an industry city. But I ended up finding someone that shot this documentary. Um, I got involved originally because I agreed to do some B camera for it. It was about two guys, two friends that were trying to run around Mount Rainier in a single shot. It's a 95-mile trail. They ran through the entire night. Um, and so it was pretty interesting footage. There was five teams that would, would hike up, get the shot hike back down, drive to another part of the mountain, hike up, get the shot, um, and then all these interviews and so on. And the cost of living was pretty low back then. And so I befriended the director and he said, why don't you cut the film? And I said, that's going to be the biggest mistake you've ever made. Um, (laughs) And he said, you're going to do it for free. So I don't have much to lose. Um, (laughs) So I did it. I I cut it. uh, Maybe, you know, the days were short. They were probably six hour days with a lunch that he paid for. Um my girlfriend was fully employed. So we could make it work. And then I got night work at Safeco Stadium selling hot dogs and beer, um, which was the best job I've ever had, by the way, Amazing. outside of all of this. Yeah. <laughs> um so when I moved back to New York, it was really great. Um and so we we just he didn't want to cut it. He it's just he didn't want to he wanted the objectivity. And it was um, it's not a super complicated edit. There was no graphics. There was no, uh, background information there. We had a handful of interviews that we threaded throughout, but it was an A to B story. It was them starting and them finishing. And so it wasn't hard to sort of say, I'm going to do these building blocks. Now we've got all the interviews transcribed. We watched them all through. We kind of know the general vibe. They are going to help us with the TikTok because there was some drama about who made it and who didn't. And, and then it was sort of filling in, finding those, like we talked about, those sort of central scenes that have the soul and kind of looking for those afterwards. Um, and so I moved back to New York a year later, and I was able to get work cutting uh, for broadcast. And this was um, mostly reality TV, the kind of stuff that that was a really good challenge, um, but not something that I myself was interested in. It, it wasn't even a guilty pleasure, I, I I've never really responded um but a lot of the stuff i was doing was sort of uh kind of home improvement and cooking shows and things like that um and uh I, then i got an offer at mtv to work on a show called made um which it's for editors in new york made is sort of like um the law and order version like everyone's worked on a maid at some point in their career um <laughs> okay <laughs> And it was a it was a real boot camp show, similar to the other ones I was talking about. It they would they would hang out with this high school kid for somewhere between eight and ten weeks, um shooting constantly, constant, constant, constant rolling. And then it was probably somewhere between an eight and ten week edit um for a broadcast hour. Um and that one, I mean, those were music cues that were changing every 15 to 20 seconds. Um, to, tons of needing to create humor comic timing pulling out the music bringing it back in when are you being sarcastic when are you being sincere um where is this person from they're from the south we're using too much twangy music we got to strip out half the country tracks and so it, it was it was really uh it was fierce um but i, I in a weird way i i credit that um and from there, I started working on uh, feature docs. So that was a, a step down in in pay, um, obviously, because uh, it was working with friends and friends of friends. But um, hmm. it, it was very rewarding work. Uh, and so from, from that point forward, it was working for public broadcasting. And um, I did some work for CNN with, with uh, Alex Gibney's company. Um, uh, frontline um, and uh, that landed me advice as an editor on the HBO weekly series in 2016 um, it was a great fit uh, really liked everyone I worked with got along really well with the um, EPS of the show and uh, I then ended up working on some of the longer form pieces um, that was a time when vice was trying some longer form stuff for Vice News Tonight, also on HBO, um, and then maybe some longer pieces that would be on HBO. And I ended up doing a couple uh, campaign trail stories that involved having a couple different edit rooms. Um, and it was just the same old stuff for me. Um, but then the EP at the time approached me and said, have you ever thought about doing supervising producing as a, or as a senior producer? And I said, no, I, not at all. Um, mm-hmm. And he said, I, I, I think you'd be great at it. And I said, are you, who are you talking to right now? I'm not, I, like, I'm not, I'm an editor. And, and he's like, you wrote, he said, you know, you wrote all the copy for that last episode. You ran two different edit rooms, you know? And to me, it was just sort of the job. I, I, um, I like writing. I don't I don't know that it's very good. It, it requires a lot of pressure, but I, I enjoy, you know, as you're sort of getting through a scene, and you know something needs to be written, and you just need to get on to the next one, you'll just drop down on a card, blah, 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 we need to say, uh, now I'm doing this. And I always liked writing a little more and kind of adding a little more and so on. And so I, he, he said, you know, we want you to do this as an editor too, and not just because you'll keep an edit room, and there'll be certain pieces that will require additional editing that, that you can't kind of communicate through notes and you'll need to take scenes and kind of do them on your own terms. Um, and, and we want that sort of thought process. So, and that was for shorter form pieces originally. That was when Vice News Tonight was doing a lot of short packages. Another thing I had very little experience with. Um, and so that was a great learning opportunity to, to just sort of, uh, get that information out and, and do it in a way that, you know makes the reporting very clear but VNT at the time was finding that their stories were feeling a little stale or they were no matter how strong the reporting was and how critical the stories were um the the, the kind of creative circle on VNT was feeling like they just had a, a lot of similarity to kind of other news pieces so i think that's they made a couple changes including hiring me um to kind of think about things from more of a documentary perspective and try and take some risks. Um, and then I was a supervising producer on a, that we had a Hulu series, which are broadcast hours. Um, and then have been on Showtime, um, since that started a few years ago in that same role. So I'm, as a senior, I'll oversee a project or a, a segment. Sometimes they, the pitch is completely good to go and comes, ready to rock and it gets greenlit and they go in the field and certain teams know exactly how they work together and who their contacts are and they just kind of come back with the footage and so your job then is just working very directly with the editor and the correspondent to look at stuff and find that story thread um other times you're if it's if someone's come to you needing help develop a pitch you're doing research and talking it through and and figuring out you know, what goes into a story and seeing how much this has been covered before and getting a pitch shaped up. So it's, it's a lot of different hats, but the, the, the core of it is an editor's brain, um, almost seeing yourself as a second editor, but by way of watching something back, knowing exactly what went into it, what the goals were of the scene, what the reality is of the footage that was shot, the timeline that we have to do it, and an objective look at what is actually the strongest stuff in here that that um, supports the story, and that's a lot to throw on one editor on a really yeah. intense timeline. So the the story seniors are there to just to to just kind of really be there and and um, talk it through and maybe do the writing if the correspondent is back in the field and doesn't have the time to. Um, and so now it's the, the work is those pieces for Showtime, but also I'll work on a series like Transnational, um, where you and I met, or uh, a couple of broadcast hours that I'm working on right now for Vice News Tonight. Um, but all kind of I'll come up with this all, all with sort of the similar similar goals, I would say. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's the whole story there.
0: Yeah, great. <laughs> um, it's really interesting because. I think for a lot of editors, um, perhaps not the majority, and the majority love editing and the process of editing and can't see themselves really doing anything anything else other than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there certainly is this kind of um, unspoken of ceiling as an editor, Mm -hmm. where you work your way through the ranks, you become a better and better storyteller, you work on bigger and better uh, projects, uh, not necessarily Mm -hmm. bigger budget. Um, There definitely is a kind of ceiling when it comes to budget and the durations of projects and your day rate, you know, there comes a point where if you put it any higher, you're not gonna get hired. (laughs) So um, uh, there comes a point, I think, where some editors are kind of thinking well what's what's next and wondering what's the next step up from here how do i take my skill set where do i go from here um how would you say your role as a supervising producer uh complements your your love for editing do you do you recommend it to a lot of editors or do you think it's kind of a a niche thing that maybe only a few would actually enjoy?
1: The first thing I'd say is the reason I enjoy it is, is because it solves some of the frustrations that I was feeling editing and the ceiling that I was feeling in editing was a little bit of the, um, limitations of the role. I should say, I didn't like doing notes that, came from people that I didn't think understood the story. So when the offer came to sort of change things up a little bit, as I was sort of saying, somewhat jokingly, but quite honestly, like uh, intimidated by the prospect of it, um, about the responsibility, the truth is that it was, it was really responding to something that I felt I needed based on my personal ceilings. The one thing that I have been able to consistently do Without doing it consciously, my my kind of feet have sort of followed the heart, but not the brain. Is put myself in environments where there's room for growth, Um, or where you're working with people that just give a shit about working with good people. I would say if if you are seeking a kind of more of a leadership role, um, and at a company where there's a lot of different rooms running, it it could be a good suggestion to people in management to say, like, I'm going to keep editing, but also I'm willing to take on some more responsibility. Um, You know, I can't do two jobs, so I'll be cutting less, but I could be across some projects. And I also think lead editing, sometimes that's certain places have that. That's a good way to sort of explore what it's like to cut scenes, but also sort of be the gatekeeper and be collecting scenes as they come through and building them out and kind of really having, um, your head around it. That's a lead editing job, uh, that has multiple rooms is can often be the best of both worlds. No matter how shit the economy is and how dubious it looks, you got to move around and find the stuff you like. You got three kids at home and you got a sweet ass gig line cutting for ESPN. Do it. Get your bobbleheads put your kids' pictures on the walls, lock the door, never move, you know, and just cherish your weekends. That's totally cool. Like get that fucking paper and do that. Mm -hmm. But if you are less interested in that and are more interested in, um, finding something you really like, I I say, move around, keep, keep, keep moving, keep finding stuff.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting thread that, um, you know from the people that you speak of including yourself who have uh, video editing uh, experience but it's um it's not just kind of a throwaway amount of experience it really is a bed um uh, you know a concrete mm-hmm. bed of knowledge on which everything else is is built and i think you know it was interesting when you said you know if, if we let's wake up in a world tomorrow that's completely different and having if you know if that were the case having that experience as an editor and a storyteller just being mm-hmm. having that knowledge as a storyteller it really is a strong foundation for so so many skills mm-hmm. um, and that could translate even into sales uh being able to tell stories right. in order to, to sell and um, you know so having that is really just an such a versatile and incredible and powerful skill um that i think no matter how you feel you know if you're if you're not feeling comfortable where you are as an editor or strong um those skill sets are incredibly useful no matter where you decide to go here here so i would love to you've you've mentioned so many different projects that you've worked on uh, over the years do you have a favorite that springs to mind one that you're most proud of
1: yeah actually i would say my favorite project uh, was a feature doc i did um it was called radio unnameable i got to it because this uh, two good friends of mine this husband and wife filmmaking team um paul lovelace and jessica wolfson so they were researching this guy I called um he passed away a couple of years ago unfortunately but um bob Fass, who is sort of the, one of the central figures towards uh, in free form radio. So New York DJ for WBAI, early 60s, and he was on the air um, until his passing. WBAI became this sort of, it was, it was you know one of these lesser known New York cultural institutions. But there still wasn't enough archival or source material in the world to ent- entirely cover a film about radio, where the gems of the piece were just playing back these moments um, and so we they got maybe eight or nine different small grants to make the film um, you know so a thousand bucks here a thousand bucks there kind of thing and including an interesting grant uh, from anthology film archives that uh, let us fair use um, a ton of kind of period specific super 8 footage Um from that time um and so one of the scenes that i really enjoyed cutting uh was a sort of an, an unfortunate subject matter but there was a caller who called in it was a late night you know it's a late night call show people calling from all over it's connecting people on the air um and someone called in who who had just um taken a, a, a bag full of pills and was attempting suicide um and he called in to sort of talk about it as he was sort of drifting. Um, And so Bob's role was to sort of keep him on the air and try to keep him animated while, you know, trying to get people to trace the call and see if they could help this guy. I had to use this, all this footage from, we had a lot of footage from like a night carnival scene at Coney Island, where it's just home videos that someone had shot um, and just kind of played with it and put it together in a way that, Felt like it was reminiscent of something nostalgic, something that you could look back on, something that was advertised, something that was something that was there, something that was a goal, um, but also something you could overlook. And so, finding a way to listen to this character's on air, uh, he was he was saved. By the way, they were able to get to him oh, wow. in time. Yeah, um, but it was it that was that for me was the soul that was the soul of that film was um taking the time to really figure out how to be an audience member who could listen uh, but also have something that can maybe evoke imagery that's abstract enough that they can think for themselves but not have it just be random
0: yeah sounds amazing sounds like a masterclass in uh, in cutting without the having the footage necessary so before we wrap up i I kind of wanted to ask you a couple of questions for anyone listening who is thinking i would really love to work on some vice documentaries um tell me what you look for in an editor
1: Mm, good question um well there's so uh, starting with the obvious stuff you know uh certain experience can can speak for itself but you can't always rely on that um you don't know exactly the terms of how something was put together how many other editors there were um so it's a good place to start um but When interviewing people um, there's a handful of things. Um, The truth is like getting along with someone and realizing that they're affable and down to talk and are good conversationalists really goes a long way. Um, That's something I've heard when I was starting out yeah, because I was sort of wondering why I was getting jobs. I, I didn't, I didn't have the CV I felt to reflect what a company might be looking for, and people would say like, "You're easy to talk to, and you, you know, you're fun to talk to." And 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 I would say, "Well, but that doesn't make me good. That doesn't make me. That doesn't. I mean, sure, but that sort of sounds like you're saying I'm bad at the other stuff." but at least you're, at least you mean, well, it sounded pathetic, you know? Um, but it's the opposite. Cause the truth is this is so fucking collaborative, no matter how, um, no matter how much of a monastery you go into, and no matter how much you sort of black out and just work, there has to be this really solid communication and ability to be, um, mobile and ability to be scrappy and so on. And so, um, Chemistry is is no small thing. So um, I would rather take someone that can appreciate the process and appreciate what we're trying to do and that is willing to try things over someone that has done that same story 10 times and is a veteran and, and doesn't really wanna chat through what another way to do it might be. And their version is gonna be great, but I would rather the person that is kind of more game to, to sort of figure it out. Um, but in terms of sort of meat and potatoes, I would say um, it's, it's an ability to be able to evaluate a scene. And, um, and the second part of that is not get too overwhelmed by what it all means. I think a, a good editor one that's, that works well for the projects that we're doing is someone that is working quickly sort of based on what the goals are for the scene, let's say, and how we think it's gonna perform, subject to change, but is just can kind of, and with varying degrees of support from the producer or an AE, at the end, whatever the case may be, can kind of end up with something that is working and say, I feel like the scene I mean, this is rough as shit, and, but what's in there makes sense. I'm going to move on to the next thing. Um, and I'm just going to start sort of turning the soil and, and moving through it. Um, you know, certain times you're, you're maybe working with a group that at the end of the first week wants to see an assembly of the entire first act kind of thing. In which case, you know, that you have to do that. That's the job. Um, but if you have the ability or the project allows for you to kind of get to know the material better and move through it. It's great working with, with people that are able to go for a, an ugly rough cut, but one that sort of reflects, you know, what we're trying to do. Um, and I think just the, the ability to see that and say, and, and also push back and say like, that's great but you've only got one side of the story who's who who, you know how how are we going to get through that you're like well i don't know we didn't really think about that it's like well if you don't have anyone that can do that then just we have to write that in vo um and dropping a card that says vo tk someone that's going to offer a counterpoint before we move on you know so it, it editors that are able to sort of see the big picture are great but not get Frustrated by the big picture, so sometimes you'll be working and someone will say, "I don't really understand the, the whole way you have it structured." And they'll say, "Like, well, we're not. It's just going to be scene to scene. We're not going to be doing heavy intercutting. So, no matter where this character lands, we still want them to speak about this this one thing." Like, yeah, but I don't really see how it flows from here to there. It's like, well, I appreciate that, but let's just cut the scene. Let's just get it roughed out, and then we'll move on from there. So, I think, I think the ability to kind of um, move through it and sort of trust the process, even if it's, even if it seems a little wonky, um, that's pretty helpful. Um, and you know, not, not getting hung up maybe on perfecting and fine tuning stuff in the very beginning. Again, if you, if you've got an executive that says, I want to see the opening scene like it's going to look, then it's like, okay, cool. We're going to, we're going to get those music cues. We're going to nail it. We're going to sell it to you. Um, uh if if it isn't the case like that um someone that that isn't afraid to really dive in and try things and and not necessarily worry too much about how that affects you know five scenes down the road um mm. that's a big one
0: yeah so you're saying that um a portfolio really will only get you so far the key mm-hmm. traits are someone who is collaborative And is able to um uh to work on their own as well and able to push forward with their own ideas.
1: Yeah, and and maybe maybe another one to add to that is someone that's willing to um ask for help and Mm. to I think there can be for some there can be this sort of prevailing notion that if I'm asking someone to look at something, it's because I haven't figured it out or it's because I'd rather just solve this on my own and come to you with something. I want the reward. I, I want, I want the sort of pat on the back. I want the gold star. Um, but for me speaking as a supervising, uh, uh, as a story producer, it's never too early to show me stuff. The the edits that I think flourish the best are when my G chat is blowing up all day. Cause they're like, can you come in or, <laughs> Can, can I send you this link? Can we share screens? I, I don't, you know, and you just, you mm. solve so much on the fly like that. Yeah, yeah. Really great advice.
0: So for someone who is in perhaps in a junior position or, um, you know, intermediate position, do you have a kind of a recommended or a standard practice way to move through the industry towards cutting documentaries for Vice.
1: We have someone who's um, considered one of our best editors because he's able to kind of see the story very early and and kind of help get things done in a way where we, well, he'll, well, I look at his cuts and I'm like, yeah, I can see it in there. I can definitely see it in there. He was a junior editor when he started here um, and was a, sort of a finishing editor um, where the piece would be done but he would work with one of the story supervisors and they would ask for some frames here and some frames there and so on and so forth. And he did that for several years. Um, And just by way of being here and being a, a good person and a diligent finishing editor, he was given the opportunity to cut some scenes and cut them well. And now he's one of our most reliable editors. I think kind of just getting in the door, however you are is one way to do it. Um, and the other thing is, to, I would say, like take take work that you think you like. It's it's tough to stay busy and it's tough to pay the bills, um, but I found when I was in reality TV, I wasn't I didn't have my compass oriented. I wasn't sort of looking a certain way. I was just doing the work, doing the work, and you sort of forget that time is moving forward and you are steering it, whether you know it or not. And so I would say, look for the pieces that you want to do, look for the places that are making the work you want to do and Mm -hmm. go knock on their door, you know, and take the job. If you can, if you can swing a job where the wages are less than you'd like, but you know, it's going to be a good experience or have a reason to believe it's going to be a good experience. Um, you'll never miss that money that you didn't make. Yeah. Cutting that thing that you don't like. Yeah, I
0: would say that's, that's a beautiful soundbite to finish on. (laughs) Yeah. You'll never miss the money that you, that you missed out on. If you, um, if you follow opportunities rather than just money, I think that's, um, yeah, it's incredibly true. And, um, certainly the, the most valuable jobs that I've worked on, that has been the case. And so I Mm. fully agree.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's just water under the bridge. Like you've, you, you sort of it's just never even a question you know yeah if you just and and it's
0: the it's the other jobs the ones that pay well that you do in order to work on the lesser paid more rewarding jobs anyway and and, you know that's just um that's par for the course really that is just that's right that's the way the industry works and there's no there's no sin there's no shame in that at all so I couldn't agree. More. Right. Thank you, Greg, so much for My joining us today and for your incredible insight. It's been a pleasure.
1: Same for me. Thank you.
0: That was quite a full interview. We covered a lot of ground in that. And I feel like even I learned some things. It was really nice to kind of get to the root thinking about some of the concepts uh, behind storytelling and filmmaking, uh, factual filmmaking, we spoke about story thread as well and some of the concepts that you can learn within the storytelling for documentaries course within Unspice Pro. So, if you are looking to understand a little bit more about storytelling, then head to unspliced.com forward slash pro, you can sign up there. Um, And you can see the training as well. If you head to unsplice.com forward slash training, you can see all of the different courses that you can get access to. Thank you so much for joining me and Greg. And hopefully I'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.